0: Welcome to the Explorers' Roundtable, where intrepid voyagers share tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in discussions relevant to the science, history, and literature of exploration. Here's your host for the evening, Jonathan Hal Reynolds.
1: Good evening. Tonight at the Roundtable, we have Pulitzer Prize-nominated finalist Davis Sobel. The literary focus of her career has been on scientific subject matter in books such as Longitude, Galileo's Daughter, and The Glass Universe. Tonight she's here to talk to us a bit about Henrietta Leavitt and the women of the Harvard Observatory. David, thank you for joining us here tonight at the Round Table. It's an honor to have you here. Hi there. Is there a story I read somewhere about you finding your calling as a science writer right around the very first Earth Day back in 1970? Can you tell us that story?
0: Yes, I I had a lot of trouble finding my calling because the idea of science writing was not well known, and it was unknown to me. Hmm. So sure. even though I had attended the Bronx High School of Science, I was sometimes a science major in college, although not consistently because... I loved to write, and I couldn't really see myself as a scientist, and still hadn't figured out how to put those things together, worked for IBM as a technical writer, had to go to programming school, and completely by accident, I I bumped into a friend of mine who was working at the local newspaper, and she told me they had an opening on the women's pages, and why didn't I just come down and try out for it which i did in this random way the way life-changing events often happen and uh within a week i felt that i had found the right place and it was the winter of 1970 and people were getting ready for this first earth day so because i was on the women's pages i had complete freedom to choose my feature stories And I found the people who were working on Earth Day, people who were studying the effects of pollution, wondering how we would accomplish conservation. And that's what I was writing about. Mm. And then I, because I was always interested in science, I found other science stories to follow. Genetic counseling was just coming into vogue then. And it, took at least another year for me to discover that what i was doing was called science writing
1: amazing cuz most people don't find their uh, their calling in life so you're lucky that you did eventually find your calling it's i am awesome et- hard journey. I'm
0: extremely lucky that i've gotten to do what i do for all these years
1: mm-hmm. i
0: really i have a ridiculously good time even <laughs> when it isn't going well overall <laughs>
1: it's still a good time Yeah. Can you tell us a little about your latest book, The Glass Universe, and give a brief synopsis to our listeners?
0: The Glass Universe is the story of a group of women who were given an unusual opportunity at the dawn of modern astrophysics. So they had jobs, paying jobs, at the Harvard College Observatory where they examined photographs of the night sky, photographs taken on glass photographic plates through long exposures with telescopes. And this breakthrough enabled the practice of astronomy to go on day and night, rain or shine, which was very unusual. Once you had the glass plate, you could study it at any time. And the women made important discoveries including a classification system for the stars and a way to measure distances across space and later the actual content of the universe, the fact that the universe is mostly hydrogen and helium, Hmm. which was not what people thought.
1: How did you first come across this story that intrigued you enough to spend years writing about it?
0: For a long time, I worked as a freelance magazine writer. And Omni Magazine sent me to interview Wendy Friedman, a very well-known, highly regarded astronomer who was in charge of one of the Hubble Telescope key projects. And she mentioned the name Henrietta Swan Levitt to me and explained how this woman who had lived more than 100 years ago had made an observation that laid the foundation for the distance scale of the universe. And that work that she, Wendy Friedman was doing with the Hubble telescope was based on this earlier study. So I had never heard of Miss Levitt. And when I went to read more about her, I saw that she was working in a whole group of women at Harvard, which was completely shocking because Harvard has never had a reputation of being particularly accommodating to women. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that there were so many women and, and that they were working in astronomy at a time when women didn't really have a foothold in the scientific world. So, I thought it was a great story, and I didn't attempt it right away. In fact, I waited about 25 years. And in all that time, nobody else picked it up first. And I thought that was so surprising because it was such a good story. And then when I started to work on the book, I realized why it had waited for me um, because it's really – Hard to work through all that science and put all the different people's stories together, so it um, it was a challenging project, but a very rewarding one.
1: Hmm. That's quite a big undertaking, and uh, the title, of "The Glass Universe," is that a play on the phrase "the glass ceiling"? Indeed, it is, um,
0: but it's also a description of the plate collection. Because on the half a million plates assembled at the observatory, you you really find the universe.
1: Can you tell us about Pickering and his role in gathering these human computers together to work at the Harvard Observatory? It was fascinating to hear people being referred to as computers long before there were the machines of the same name.
0: Pickering was brought in as director of the observatory, and he was the first non-astronomer to occupy that role. And he had been teaching physics at MIT. And when he arrived at the observatory, he found working there the daughters of the previous directors. Originally, the director not only lived at the observatory, there was a director's residence there, Mm -hmm. but, drafted his family to do the work because there really wasn't a budget for the observatory. So most things came out of the director's pocket. And Pickering could tell that these young women were extremely capable and he he had no thought of getting rid of them, but only to find more like them if possible. Uh, Of course, the ones there had been raised in the observatory family or married into it. So his new hires had to come from the outside world. And he figured, as long as the woman had a basic intelligence, he could teach her how to do any of the necessary work. And that's what he did. There is an apocryphal tale about um, uh, that that attributes the beginnings of women at Harvard to Pickering in in a most unflattering way. So the the way the story goes, he was really disgusted with his male assistants and chewed them out and said that he thought his maid could do a better job. And then he brought in his maid and she was the start of this group of highly talented women. The truth is even better. Um, First of all, Pickering was extremely polite. He would never have chastised an employee in front of anyone else. Um, But he really did bring in his maid to work in the observatory. And uh, her name was Williamina Fleming. She was a Scottish immigrant, extremely intelligent, and had taken this job as a maid only because she was desperate. Her husband had disappeared and she was pregnant. So in the observatory, she learned how to examine plates, how to compare the brightness of stars, how to look for variable stars. And she really took to that work. She also started the classification system and, uh, Having been a school teacher at one point and just being a really organized person, she just whipped the place into shape and he really relied on her to hire new personnel to keep things going. She was a, a tremendous force and worked at the
1: observatory till she died. Can you tell us about the photographic process with the emulsion and the examining of the dry plates in order to measure and catalog the brightness of stars?
0: Photography was also developing at this time. And a few really enterprising people had the idea to photograph the stars, which at first was extremely difficult because they had wet plates. So you'd have to paint the emulsion onto the plate and then quickly right. expose it. And for for astronomy, because the light was very faint you really wanted longer exposures. So when dry plates came along, that, that really made the big difference. And that's what got Pickering excited about the possibilities of photography. Mm. So um, you really use the telescope as your camera. And instead of putting your eye to the eyepiece, you have a photographic plate. And you can expose it for... An hour, two hours—you uh, mm. have to keep guiding the telescope while you're doing that, to keep the aim focused on the same field of view throughout the long exposure, mm. and that was difficult to do at first. Uh, even even when clock drives could turn the telescope to counteract the turning of the Earth. They were balky and you couldn't really trust them. Somebody had to be there making sure everything worked smoothly.
1: Who was the American astronomer Henrietta Leavitt? How did she come to be a part of this fascinating work at the Harvard Observatory?
0: Henrietta Leavitt arrived in Cambridge to go to school. She was a student at the uh, Institute for Collegiate Education, which became Radcliffe. And because the school was very close to the observatory, a member of the observatory staff would teach astronomy to the women at Radcliffe. And, uh, and Pickering instituted that practice of sending a staff member over there to teach. And it was also a good way to recruit clever students to come and either volunteer or actually take a job at the observatory. And that's how they first got Henrietta Labatt. So she took the astronomy course, then she came as a volunteer, then she left for a number of years. She traveled to Europe, she had another job, she helped her family relocate, but she really loved the observatory work and she wrote to Pickering and told him that she'd like to come back. And then he made that possible for her and she stayed there for the rest of her life. Hmm. These these jobs were so interesting to these women. I mean, nobody left. Hmm. <laughs> they, just, they just stayed there. They the stayed right there after the long
1: haul. Wow. Yeah. If you,
0: you know at first, if you got married, you had to leave. Really? Yes, because really? married women didn't work. But... Hmm. That changed. Around the 1930s, that changed.
1: Can you tell us about Miss Levitt's major discovery and how he gave astronomers a candle that can measure the distance between galaxies?
0: So Miss Levitt was assigned to discovering variable stars. The, this was a huge research area. Many stars, we, we use the expression constant as the stars, but actually they vary a lot. Most of them are variable stars. And that means that their light changes in brightness over time. And if you photograph the same stars every night, you can see that change. You can also see it if you're observing the sky from your backyard. Certain variables are very popular among amateurs. Because even with your eye, if you're really paying attention... You can see the change, and it's a very regular change. Every three days, every five days, the star will cycle through this change in brightness. So she was discovering variables on photographic plates. And at the beginning of this story, there were maybe 200 variable stars known all over the sky. She discovered a few thousand of them. Wow. Wow. And she was looking at images of what we now know are two satellite galaxies of the Milky Way called the the large and small Magellanic clouds. And in the small cloud, she found about 900 variable stars. And she realized that um, they had different periods. And when she analyzed her findings, the stars that achieved the greatest brightness also took the longest time to cycle through their changes. Hmm. And that seemed either a big coincidence or something really significant. And she also reasoned that since... All of the stars were in this particular group. They were all roughly the same distance from the Earth. So the ones that looked brighter really were brighter. And then the fact that the brightest ones had the longest periods. So she reported that fact and uh, and then really made a study of it, selected a, fir- a, a, a small group of the stars and tracked them Minutely over time, and was able to show that this relationship, which for many years was called the period luminosity relationship, really held. And then other observers pointed out that these same kinds of stars existed in the Milky Way. And so by comparing the ones in the Milky Way with the ones in the Magellanic Cloud, you could calculate the distance to the Magellanic Cloud. And it was like thousands of light years away. So, um, so there, there was a distance scale that, that people could use. And other people used it to measure the size of the Milky Way, which hadn't been known before.
1: So Ms. Levitt wasn't the one who discovered that the diameter of the Milky Way galaxy is about 100,000 light years?
0: No, uh, that was Harlow Shapley, but he used her technique to create that so, finding. And he, uh, even before he came to Harvard, when he was working at Mount Wilson in California, he would write to Pickering about Miss Levitt's work and how important it was and how much depended on it. And he predicted how much in the future would depend on it. And he was
1: right. How did Edwin Hubble use Ms. Levitt's period luminosity relation to determine that the universe is expanding?
0: Well, the first thing he noticed, there was a big debate going on as to whether the spiral structures that people could see were part of the Milky Way, or if they were actually separate island universes, separate galaxies. And he found one of her variable stars in one of these spirals in the uh, Andromeda, what they call the Andromeda nebula. Now we call it the Andromeda galaxy. And by using the relationship, the period luminosity relationship, it turned out that Andromeda was about 2 million light years away. And that meant it couldn't possibly be part of the Milky Way. So that was his first revelation. And then he got interested in the way the light from these spiral nebulae, uh, that that most of them had light that was shifted toward the red, which indicated that these objects were moving away from us.
1: Hmm.
0: And uh, he was able to, come up with a his own relationship, that the, the faster a galaxy was receding, the, the farther it was, the faster it was moving away. And that relationship has for years been called the Hubble law. So in recent times, a few fair-minded astronomers have said, well, we should really call the period luminosity relation the Levitt law.
1: You mentioned to me in an earlier correspondence that Ms. Levitt never traveled much, but she very much could be considered an explorer. How do you think her work in astronomy has contributed to the scholarship of space exploration through the years? She's, she made
0: a, a fundamental discovery that enabled people to determine how far they had actually explored. Mm. Uh, there 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 was no way to measure distance before that I mean, there were ways to measure distance of distances to relatively close things but the farther reaches of space were out of bounds before her period luminosity relationship
1: i can't remember the source but i read somewhere that edwin hubble said that she deserved the nobel prize for her work was she ever nominated
0: she was originally nominated by a fellow named Gustav Mittag Leffler from the Swedish Academy and he didn't realize she had already died. So the the Nobel Prize is not awarded posthumously and nobody had nominated her during her lifetime.
1: This year marks the 100th anniversary of Henrietta Levitt's death. My two young daughters are very fascinated by her and scientists like Mary Anning who were often overlooked during their own time I'm curious, what do you hope that Henrietta Leavitt is remembered for by future generations? What should her legacy be?
0: Yeah, that that she, she created a, a yardstick into the universe. She really found a way for people to understand the enormous distances in space.
1: What debt does modern science owe to these extraordinary women, Fleming, Cannon, and Leavitt? and the work they did at the Harvard Observatory.
0: Well, the stellar classification system that they came up with is still in use. Every every Astronomy 101 student has to learn the mnemonic, which for years was, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me. They've come up with many non-sexist ways to say that now, but that's the order of... Uh, the, the original classification was in alphabetical order, but over time, when, when Ms. Cannon noticed... That uh, there was a reason to put the O stars ahead of the B ahead of the B stars and the B stars ahead of the A stars, everything shifted. So um, the, we owe them the classification system and and the distance scale. And then the first graduate students in astronomy at Harvard were all women, because the work of the first Harvard computers, they were originally called computers, um, had attracted support from interesting, interested people interested in astronomy and interested in helping women find careers in astronomy. So there were Pickering fellowships for women, financial support to bring women into work at the observatory. And Pickering's successor, turned those fellowships into graduate student fellowships. And because they were earmarked for women, the first graduate students were all women, Mm -hmm. all recruited from the women's colleges. Wow. Um, And one of those women, Cecilia Payne, again, returning to the glass plates, trying to figure out from the spectra of the stars recorded on the plates, what the stars were made of and in what relative quantities. And people really thought the stars would be similar to the earth in composition, but she discovered that it was mostly hydrogen wherever you looked. And that sounded ridiculous. And she was urged not to say that in her dissertation but that was her finding and she reported it and it took only about four years
1: for the entire
0: astronomical community to come around and agree that it really was mostly hydrogen
1: on a more personal note deva in all of your research and all the books you've written what is the main thing you hope readers come away with from your body of work
0: I just hope they get a sense of how interesting things are wherever you look uh, and that if you if you get interested in something, you can go your own make your own exploration of it that I think actually makes life more meaningful.
1: Can you tell us what you were currently working on
0: so now now that I am woke to how difficult it has been for women i personally I had no problem getting a job, getting positions I wanted, uh, even getting into Bronx Science, which when I went there was heavily, heavily favored admitting boys over girls in a ratio of three or four to one. Even though it was a public school, this was considered fine because people assumed the girls would not pursue a a scientific career. So why give them the benefit of that education? Hmm. But even recently, I, I've gone to conferences for women in science and I have college students telling me that they are actively discouraged, that teachers will, will say things to them like, you're not smart enough to do physics. And this is now, not in the wow. 1890s. Hmm. So I feel there's, there's a tremendous need for stories that provide role models for young women. And one of the great role models of all time is Marie Curie, who happens to be the only woman scientist that most people are aware of. But I, I recently learned something very interesting about her, uh, namely that uh, because of her husband's early death, she became the head of his laboratory. And this was in 1906. So she was the only woman in the world in charge of a research laboratory. Mm. And she also managed to take over his teaching position. So she was the first woman who ever taught at the University of Paris. Wow. But then because she was in charge of the lab and she was a woman, she did not hesitate to hire other women. And there's a long succession of women who came to work for her. So
1: that's my story.
0: And um, the, the working
1: title is At Madame Curie's Lab. I love it. I can't wait to read it. Carl Sagan has always been a big influence in my life. I've seen you mention him several times in various interviews. And I'm curious what his influence was on you. And did you know him when he was alive?
0: His influence on me was tremendous. I first knew about him when I moved to Ithaca and he was a bright young faculty member at Cornell. And I went to a public lecture that he gave and I can still remember, this was 1973. uh, I can still remember what he talked about, how exciting a lecturer he was, how engaged i was in the content i remember sitting there and thinking this is the most interesting thing i've ever heard and that's what pushed me to focus on astronomy which i had not been doing before so i really owe him a lot and i got to interview him several times and uh because um first i interviewed him for a local newspaper in ithaca and then the job of science writer in the Cornell University News Bureau opened up and he offered to write me a recommendation. And I think that's how I got that job. Wow. And then later when he created his television series, Cosmos, mm-hmm. he wanted someone to go on the shoots who could talk to people there were always onlookers, curious people coming up, and be able to answer their questions about the subject matter. So I got to do that on a couple of the
1: episodes,
0: and uh,
1: that says a lot about how much he trusted you in your knowledge. Yeah,
0: yeah, it was really thrilling. It's, and right. then just to watch how how those episodes were put together was really interesting.
1: Do you have any interest in Carl Sagan stories? Anything specific that you can recall?
0: One of the episodes was filmed in Greece, and he was going to talk about the order of the planets. And the scene was an actual ancient amphitheater, and there was a fire down in a pit at the focus, and then flags of the planets were arranged in the tiers of seating area around where the audience would have been seated and so i i got there early in the morning and i was looking at the flags and i noticed that they had set up saturn before jupiter so i was able to point that out to the to the i forget who probably the on site director because if Carl had arrived and seen that, it really would have ruined everybody's
1: day. <laughs> uh, lastly, one question I like to ask all our guests is if you have a book or film recommendation for our listeners, something they can continue on with beyond this episode.
0: Yes. Well, I, because you're an explorer's roundtable, I'm going to suggest one of my all-time favorite books. This is Endurance oh, by perfect. Albert Lansing.
1: Do you know this book? I do. We just did an episode on it last week. Okay. So, the Shackleton. Uh, the the story Shackleton so story.
0: It, it's just. It's one of the all-time great
1: stories. That's wonderful. That book, the Alfred Lansing book, is is incredible.
0: And I, as an armchair explorer, I mean, I love reading stories about exploration. But you wouldn't get me to go and do anything like that. So the fact that I can read all about it is really wonderful.
1: To all you listeners, you can learn more about Davis Sobel's work at www.davisobel.com. I also highly recommend checking out all her books at your local bookstore or library. Uh, they're all fascinating reads. David, thank you for taking the time to be with us here at the Roundtable tonight. It was such a delight and honor to chat with you, and we wish you all the best in your literary endeavors.
0: Thank you, and good luck with your project. It sounds like a really interesting podcast, and I hope you're successful with it.
1: Thank you for tuning in to tonight's episode. We'll see you next week, back here at
0: the Explorers Roundtable. The Explorers Roundtable
1: was created to provide a place for explorers to share their tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in fireside discussions relevant to the science,
0: history and literature of exploration. If you have a story worth telling, we invite you to share it with us at explorersroundtable.com.